If you'll turn with me in your copy of God's Word to 1 Thessalonians, it'll probably be good to mark that as we'll be in 1 Thessalonians for a while. Uh, if you don't have uh, a Bible with you, feel free to use the ones in the row, and it's on page 986, the Bible's in the rows. We'll be reading uh, the first five verses this morning as our sermon text. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you. For your sake. Grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. Let's pray. Father, use your word this morning. Fill me with your spirit to make it clear and encouraging. Open our eyes and our hearts. Lord, your spirit must be at work in us for this to be effective. And so please be at work for your glory and for our good and joy, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. This may be a a fairly silly question to start with, but do you ever feel like you need encouraged? In particular, let's think in one particular area in the regard to the status of even some of your relationships with people. Do you ever doubt the nature of some of them? The security of those relationships? Perhaps, even at times, you doubt your relationship with God. I've talked to many people over the years who have wrestled with doubt, who wonder whether they are believers, whether they are safe and secure, And I will say this, when those thoughts pervade, it can be very difficult to live a joyful and thankful life. As a pastor, part of my role in that situation where I have seen evidences of grace and faith is to remind those struggling with truth, to help them to be assured. In this world, there are so many factors, so many situations that can dim the light of our assurance. So we need to have our hearts directed to truth, to evidences of grace. And that is what Paul does very skillfully at the beginning of this letter before us. He gives thanks for this young church, and he purposefully tells them. Ever think about that? He purposefully tells them the thanks that he is giving. Much of the first three chapters of this letter are riddled with thanksgiving, serves as an encouragement to the readers. It's a blessing in their lives to have these words passed on to them by Paul, by an apostle of Christ Jesus, by one ordained of the Lord to minister the grace of God. So as we come to this text, we're going to look at verses 2 to 5 this morning. Dive into Paul's thanksgiving that he shares with the Thessalonians. Now, Paul does what Paul does here 
And, and actually, the, the first bit of this uh, chapter is one sentence in Greek. And so the thought runs through, and, but we're going to break it up into two through five, and some of the thoughts that we're going to have in two through five will bleed into next week's and, and thoughts that for next week we're going to have to pull back into this week a little bit, but that's how we're going to do it. There's plenty here to occupy our time this morning. And there are three ideas here that are related to the subject of thanksgiving that will be our outline. And it's three verbs, that of praying, of remembering, and of knowing. So praying, remembering, and knowing. All of these are verbs that are supportive of the main verb, which is we give thanks. And all of them serve to bring encouragement to the young church in Thessalonica, but also to any believer that reads this word with eyes of faith and a heart desiring to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Now, as we come to this text, let's keep in mind the context of these words. We, we talked about that last week as we introduced the letter. But the church in Thessalonica had opponents. Paul was only there for a short period of time. They had opponents. And it seems that those opponents not only... Um, were, were causing trouble to the Thessalonians, but part of the way they were doing that is they were casting doubt on Paul's legitimacy. Was he really a good dude? Was he a, a person to actually bring you this news? And you can imagine that would cause doubt for the Thessalonians in believing the gospel if those who brought it to them were actually frauds. One commentator said, whether then or today, the confidence of one's own faith can waver when there is no confidence in the sincerity and integrity of the leaders who impart that faith. Consequently, Paul's discussion in the first three chapters of this letter enforces a central concern that Christians be assured about the reality of their faith. So we begin now to look at these three points and, and how they encourage the believers in the reality of their Christian experience and in their faith. So verse 2, we give thanks to God always for all of you constantly mentioning you in our prayers. Paul informs us that he gives thanks. Now, what is thanksgiving? We use that word a lot, but, but what actually is thanksgiving? It's good to be reminded that it's an acknowledgement of appreciation for something, for a goodness, for, in this particular case, for the grace of God. And so thanksgiving... That this aspect is very important here. And this is different than praising the Thessalonians for a job well done or for uh, something along those lines. Thanksgiving has a different tone to it. Calvin wrote, hence, instead of congratulations, he makes use of thanksgivings, that he may put them in mind that everything in them that he declares to be worthy of praise is a kindness of God. It's a lot different than saying, good on you, good job, whatever. But to say, I give thanks to God for you. It's telling them and reminding them, what I'm thanking is a work of God, and you ought to thank him too, and it ought to humble you. So Paul gives thanks to God for what he sees in the believers. It's God who has worked. He has changed their hearts and their lives. Their faith is a product of his mercy and grace. Now, that faith is the subject of the thanksgiving, right? That's the subject of the thanksgiving, but the object, the one to whom the thanks is given, is not the Thessalonians, but it's God. 
Okay, and that, that, that's important for us to understand. Now, in this, Paul gives this thanks in prayer. He gives it in prayer. Paul makes a habit of prayer. Listen again to his language. Constantly mentioning you in our prayers. This was his practice. If you think about Paul and his background as a Pharisee, he would have had a practice of praying at least three times a day. Morning, midday, and evening. And it seems as though that practice at least continued or perhaps even increased because you think about chapter 5, verse 17. What does he say? Pray without ceasing. He often prayed. Prayer was part of the fabric of Paul's life. And I want to show us clearly how not only was prayer, but thanksgiving, that that, that both of those things were very much a part of Paul's life. And, And how we can know that is look at his letters. We see it here in 1 Thessalonians, but let me hopefully overwhelm you a little bit here with looking at some of the start of some of his other letters. So Romans 1, verses 8 to 10. First, I thank my God. That's the first thing he's doing here. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. In Ephesians 1 And I'll just read 15 through 17. You could keep going. But he says, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him. Philippians 1, 3 to 8. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for all of you, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for all of you with all the affection of Christ Jesus. And then a longer one here, Colossians 1, starting with verse 3. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He's delivered us from the domain of darkness and has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And I could go on. We could look at Philemon. We could look at other, other texts of his. But you see this pervasiveness of, I continually pray and I continually give thanks. I have great affection for you because of all this. 
Just, just take in and, and hear his heart in all of this. You see his practice. His practice is to prayerfully meditate on the work of divine grace in the lives of other believers. To prayerfully meditate on the work of divine grace in the lives of other believers and to consistently thank God for that work and then to let them know that he's doing it. This is so telling of his pattern. So let's think about this for a minute before we move on. Paul reflected in prayer. He prayed consistently. He contemplated the blessings of the Lord. This was the impetus for his thanksgiving. And this tells us something about our practice and the rhythms of our life. Greg Beals wrote, If reflection on these things does not occur continually or unceasingly, our thankful perspective will be inconsistent and intermittent. Our hearts will be consumed with other things. We have to intentionally meditate upon the blessings of God. This was a habitual practice for Paul. So one of the things that we can take away from this is that we need to learn to slow down and contemplate the work of God in the lives of others, in our own lives, to where we've seen growth in grace in our own lives, and give thanks and let that foster humility in our lives. Does that make sense? This is a great pattern for us to try and institute as believers. It will be a blessing to your soul to do this. But we also need to move on to verse 3 here to remembering the evidences, the marks of grace that testify to a believer's salvation and that are the things that led to the thanksgiving that Paul has. So verse 3, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now those familiar with Paul will notice a triad here, won't you? Faith, love, and hope. Now, you're probably more familiar with it from 1 Corinthians 13, 13. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, uh, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Now, in that context, Paul placed love last. He stressed it because of the need for it. He was, he was addressing love because there was strife and other things going on within that church, and they needed to understand love is greatly important. Here, though, in 1 Thessalonians, the, the, where the context is persecution, Paul stresses hope. So these are arranged rhetorically to make a point. They move from work, which doesn't necessarily imply resistance, but it's, it's work, then to labor, which does imply a bit more resistance, that it's, there's difficulty with it, and then to steadfastness, which implies even antagonism and a need for greater perseverance. So work to labor to steadfastness or perseverance. So let's look at each of these. First, work of faith. I think this is primarily pointing to the work produced by faith. Because of our faith in Christ, we work. These are overt deeds done in service and obedience to God. If you look at uh, verse 8 in chapter 1, you see that the believers were evangelists. That was a work that they were engaged in, doing the work of God. Work goes with faith, at least in the sense of the faith that saves, will have it work. The faith that saves will work. We are absolutely justified by faith alone. There is no doubt in that. 
but there will be works as evidence for those who have saving faith. Calvin wrote this, Work of faith, I understand, is meaning the effect of it. This effect, however, may be explained in two ways, passively or actively, either as meaning that faith was in itself a signal token of the power and efficacy of the Holy Spirit inasmuch as He wrought powerfully in the exciting of it, so basically in giving us faith and in, in, in the, the fact that we come to faith passively, but also actively as the meaning that it afterwards produced outwardly its fruits. You know, think of Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. We know that. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works that no one should boast. But we stop there so much. But it says that, that, that there are works that have been prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That's part of what comes from our faith is that we walk in those works. But Paul here actually uses the, the, the term work of faith. He, he doesn't say works. He says work. And I, I think because he doesn't have anything specific in mind as these individual little works of faith, but a whole of life as being a work of faith. That everything, that faith transforms everything. It touches on every aspect. It's a life of an increasing work of faith. So that's the first thing. And then we move to labor of love. And as I said, we ramp up a bit in difficulty here. There's an exertion and fatigue involved in labor. Paul mentions in, in, in 2.9, he says, For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. So this idea of labor and toil, it's, it's, it's an exertion of energy. It's difficult. And that labor is done out of love. And it's an evidence of our salvation. Think of 1 John 3, verses 14 through 18. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods, and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Love will issue forth in labor, in caring for others. This is a love that's fueled by God's love for us. We've looked at Romans 5. God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. And that leads to labor. And if it doesn't, it could very well just be sentimentality and ends up being, well, rather meaningless. And it's, it's a love that's not just to fellow believers or people that you like, but it's a love to all. We demonstrate God's love to God's creation. Leon Morris wrote this. He said, God loves us, not because we are worthy, nor even as some think, because he sees in us possibilities as yet unrealized. God loves us, although he knows full well our complete unworthiness. He loves, moreover, without thought of advantage, for there is nothing that we can bring to him who made all things. He loves because it is his nature to love. He loves because he is love. Continually he gives himself in a love which is for the blessing of others, not for the enrichment of himself. 
That's the kind of love we should echo, we should emulate, is that, that, that love that gives of ourselves, not expecting anything in return. But loving out of our love for God. And then we move to steadfastness of hope. Now this is faith that persists, that endures even through trials. And it does so because of what follows. It is hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul focuses that hope on Christ and his inevitable return. This is hope that expectantly looks to Christ's return and that leads to endurance, to patient fortitude in the midst of opposition. This isn't a grin and bear it type of thing but truly a hope and a belief in the victory of Jesus. It's it's knowing that he will be victorious, that the end of the story is written, and we have that complete and perfect hope. Folks, steadfastness was one of the most valued virtues in the early church. Steadfastness, perseverance in the midst of trials and persecution. They, the, the early church saw adversity often. We don't know adversity like that very well. We know some. We don't know it in the same way. Paul had been concerned about the stability of the Thessalonian church. That's why he sent Timothy back to them to find out, how are you doing? And he got back the report. They had shown great steadfastness in the midst of the persecution that they were experiencing. They were showing that steadfastness because of the hope that they had in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that hope wasn't something vague or ethereal, but a real and solid confidence of the return and reign of Christ over all things. It was only through this that they had the strength to endure against the hostility that was brought against them. Folks, you see, when when there is hope, when there's hope, you can endure almost anything. But when you don't have hope that there will be victory, you'll give up. It is an absolute trial to just gut through anything. But when there's hope, it's like fuel for the race. That hope is so important. Endurance fades quickly when we have lost hope, or we have a false hope when our hope is not in our Lord Jesus Christ. Christian has great hope, and that hope is to fuel and is what fuels our steadfastness. Now, a bit of summary of these three things John Stott wrote. He says, together they completely reorient our lives. As we find ourselves being drawn up towards God in faith, out towards others in love, and on towards the parousia, the return of Christ, in hope. The new birth means little or nothing if it does not pull us out of our fallen introversion and redirect us towards God, Christ, and our fellow human beings. So, there's another encouragement in this Thanksgiving. So, we've got praying, remembering, but Paul's not yet done. So we move to knowing. Look at verses 4 and 5. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you. Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. 
Now, what a beautiful way to start. Imagine sitting there in the Thessalonian church and someone reads this letter and you hear the word, for we know. One, your ears are going to perk up at that. What is it Paul knows? What is it that he knows? They, you know, Paul and his companions had seen evidence. They could actually say, for we know. What comes next? Brothers loved by God. Could there be sweeter words than that? To, to turn to somebody and say, you, I know you are loved by God. You are deeply loved by the creator of the universe. That's amazing. To be loved by the sovereign by the king, even in our sinful condition and our rebellious state, loved so much that the Father sent His Son to die in our place, that, should, that is encouragement right there. That is encouragement to steadfastness. Now, I don't normally get into Greek tenses when I preach, but here the word for loved is a perfect tense. And that emphasizes an action completed in the past, and that action completed in the past was that God chose to set His love upon you that brings about the current status that you are a child of God. Now, I know talking about election can turn some people off. It'd be like, done. It can cause difficulties and questions, but it is pervasive in Scripture. We cannot walk past it. But it's not there for primarily a theological debate with someone. That is not why the Scripture is right of election and being chosen of God. It is not so you can have a debate with somebody. It is there primarily presented to be a comfort for believers. John Stott beautifully put this. He says, The topic of election is nearly always introduced for a practical purpose in order to foster assurance, not presumption, holiness, not moral apathy, humility, not pride, and witness, not lazy selfishness. So he says, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you. That is meant there for comfort. That is meant there for assurance in the midst of persecution and difficulty. Now, Paul can say that he knows that they are beloved and chosen, but why? How can he say that? Because of the evidences he's just laid out in verse 3, but also what he writes in verse 5. Their response to the, go- to the gospel demonstrated their status, demonstrated their belovedness. They didn't take it merely as the word of man or just as words, though the gospel is a message. It has to be spoken with words, but it's a divinely sanctioned message. And he's saying, he's saying they took it not just as rhetoric or persuasive speech, which Paul will talk about later in chapter 2, but this message came in power in the Holy Spirit. The, the, the Spirit's work is the power. He made the call of the gospel effectual in their hearts, and they came to know Christ. 
They turned from idols to serve the living and true God. Paul brought that with full conviction, full persuasion of the gospel. He and his companions had all approved it by the way their lives reflected the truth of the gospel. You see, as we talked about at the beginning, the state of those who bring the gospel can affect the hearers. Paul was willing to endure. Silas endured. Timothy endured. They demonstrated a life of faith and conviction. They demonstrated a life that was compelled by the love of Christ, compelled by the truth of the gospel. The desire to preach the gospel, to see many saved, that was the heartbeat of Paul. You know, there's numerous times he wrote, pray that I would speak boldly as I ought. Pray that I would get the gospel out because that is my ambition and hope and desire. And folks, there's still more that we're going to come to in the coming weeks. Because the Thessalonians didn't just hear and believe, but they imitated Paul and his companions. And more importantly, they imitated the Lord. And Paul gives thanks for all of it. And it brings for the readers great assurance, comfort, and encouragement. So what have we seen here? Paul has laid out evidences of grace. Evidences of God's working mightily in the lives of these believers. And he gives thanks. And he tells them what he's giving thanks for. Just again, imagine yourself hearing these words in that young Thessalonian church. What a blessing. What a blessing. What a privilege to hear and to be assured as you're sitting there hearing this message read, as you're assured of your relationship with the Lord. Oh, that we would learn to do the same thing. And I'll just talk about on two levels to close here. First, that we would show forth and pray and, and strive to show forth the evidences of our union with Christ in our own lives. That we would pray for ourselves and long to see the work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in how we live. That's going to come from a heart that's set on the Lord Jesus Christ that has its hope set on Him, not a hope set in our IRA or in our kids or in our relationships or anything else, but our hope set on the Lord Jesus Christ. And then two, that we would give thanks to God in our prayers and that we would learn to do this, that we would learn to communicate that to those who have shown the evidences of grace, the evidences of God's work in their lives, those marks one, this will push our prayer lives. This will help us to, to, to take the time to reflect, to slow down, to meditate on God's work. We have to do that. In order to be thankful for people, we have to stop and think through, okay, how have I seen God at work in their lives? And then give thanks to God. And then that will probably prompt us to, to think of our own lives and to thank God for the work that he's done in our lives as well. But then as we do this, it will create more thankful people, more joyous people, not only for yourself, but think about the ones that hear that you have just prayed to God and given thanks for the work of God in their lives. 
Rather than hearing, good job, hearing, I thank God for you because of this. Like on a side note, I don't really want to hear good sermon, Chad. I'd like to hear that message spoke deeply in this way. The Lord used it in this way. Not, oh, you're a good speaker. I don't care. I'd rather see people say, this is what it has done. Thank you for for God working that in your heart this week. And for us to continually to do that for one another. You see, Paul points the Thessalonians to what God has done in their lives in order to encourage them and assure them in their lives. Because we all wrestle with doubts. We all do. At different times, we doubt the security, probably all of us have doubted the security in some way, shape, or form of our relationship with the Lord. We need the assurance. We need to hear it. That's why we come together on Sundays in a, in a weekly rhythm to hear that and to be assured of the truth of God. Folks, this is truly a blessed assurance to know that Jesus is mine. What a foretaste we have of glory divine. Let's pray. Father, encourage our hearts. Deepen our trust and our faith. Give us the humility to see your work in our lives and your work in others' lives. Give us lenses on our eyes and on our hearts to see your grace and to know that it's you who works in us to will and to act according to your good pleasure. We give you praise and thanks. In Christ's name, amen.